and on to today's program, um, International Inspirations, Culinary Lessons Learned from the Road. And we have uh, um, one of the most eminent food people in Chicago to give us this talk, uh, Chef Chris Ketke, um, who's a, a big international traveler. I'm gonna tell you a little bit about Chris. Uh, he's a professional chef, having worked now for over 17 years, 37 years, I'm sorry, in the culinary field. Um, I'm just gonna read you part of his immense uh, biography. He's, uh, he's been in the culinary, worked for over 37 years in the culinary field. In the last 20 years, he's devoted his professional life to culinary education at Kendall College and at 48 other campuses in 12 countries. Um, he's an expert on international education, and he also has his finger on the pulse of global food, beverage, and hospitality trends. And Chris earned his MBA from Dominican University in River Forest. He has a bachelor's degree in French literature from Valparaiso University in Indiana. And he has a certificate. It is, you have a certificate in French, French language. That's good, yep. In, um, well, it's a Certificat de la Langue Française, pretty fancy, from the Sorbonne in Paris. Um, N'est-ce pas, huh? N'est-ce pas. <laughs> and uh, Chris has cooked professionally since 1982 in some of the finest kitchens and pastry shops in France, Switzerland, and the United States, prior to starting to work in culinary education in 1998. He was executive chef of Chicago's critical, critically acclaimed Le Nomad restaurant. And anyway, there's there's just so much more. He's, again, um, just that's the tip of the iceberg for what he's done. Chris is also the person who years ago, we were meeting at mainly at the Chicago History Museum, which was wonderful, except they didn't have free parking. And then they changed their room size uh, so that we could only accommodate 50 people, and sometimes we've had 70 or 100 people. And Chris was actually saying over and over again, why don't you meet at Kendall? And he offered us the sun, the moon, and the stars at Kendall, you know, free parking, that wonderful auditorium. And, uh, and just has been so responsible for the success of our organization. So thank you for all that. And. It's ironic that this is our first meeting outside of Kendall, but uh, how appropriate that he helps launch our 25th year at this new location. And uh, that being said, uh, Chris, would you come? Well, you you don't need to. You can stand wherever you want and and start cooking. Thank you very much. Okay, I don't do well behind a podium. Um, good morning. So, you know, I've been at Kendall for 20 years. I, uh, I came out of the food business, you know, cooking every day, with the thought that I would take a two-year hiatus um, in education, and that didn't work out so well. So 20 years later, uh, I'm still in it, uh, because I discovered that I, I, I love education, and I, I love being with students and, and, and making dreams happen and watching those faces light up. 
Um, and then watching them go on to be successful. And then in the last five years, I, I was sort of absorbed into our, our parent company and um, started working all over the world. So I was traveling about a third of the year. Um, I don't know how many countries, I'm into the 50s now. And I would go to about 20, 25 countries a year. Ultimately, having responsibility for 48 campuses in 12 countries, which is a little bit of a mind bender when you think about your day starting at like five in the morning because you know there's always somebody working somewhere. And so your day would exist of, if you're not traveling, lots of Skype calls and all that sort of stuff. And the common joke was around Kendall, it's sort of like, where's Waldo, right? <laughs> you know, where is he now? I don't know. Even my wife got to a point where people, my, my parents would be like, where's Chris? I, I don't know. I, I don't know if he's in, in Ecuador or Colombia. Maybe it's, I don't know, maybe he's in Turkey. I mean, it would be like, you know, I'd be so much coming home, grabbing my bags. and So I'm back at home now, and, and I'm, I'm back in Chicago and enjoying being home and it's lovely just to hang out with my kids and all that. But along the way, I had the immense uh, privilege of working with all these different people all over the world. And there's something really cool that happens when you travel as a chef, hanging out with other chefs. We eat. <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot. And, you know, when I go to these campuses, I'd work there for a, you know, maybe a few days, maybe a week, depending. Um, and then every night it's like, oh, you gotta try this. You have to try this. I mean, if you want the best French fries in the world, I mean, the best, Chile has the best French fries in the world. And so we would go there and get plates of French fries. They're amazing. Um, and then the last night would typically wind up with some sort of all night, Celebration. If you've been to the Latin countries, you'll know what that means. It typically involves lots of liquid, um, music, and late nights. So that was my life for five years. And you know, the, the downside is, um, I'm sure you know, many of you have traveled, you know, jet lag. I was living in constant jet lag for five years. Um, airports are horrible. Um, customs lines are horrible. Um, Coming back into this country is <laughs> depressing sometimes. And, um, but outside of that, what I did was, was euphoric. I mean, just to give you a snapshot of what that looks like, I was in Turkey at our campus in Istanbul a year ago and uh, had a crazy idea. Like, the last day I was there, I said, hey, six students I was talking to, I said, I'll tell you what, tonight let's do something different. I don't want to go out with any administration. I don't want to go out with any of the chefs. You guys take me out. Deal? And they just like, their faces lit up. And I'm like, so I met them. Six restaurants later. Um, and about two in the morning, I was back at my hotel, having consumed far too much food. But it was one of those experiences I'll never forget. Why? Because you have students who are there sharing not their food, but their culture. And so proud to do it. So what I'm gonna do today is I'm gonna walk you through the many times that I've been sitting in, a, in some country going, this is amazing. Oh my gosh. 
And this is something that America needs to know. And I've, I've discussed a lot of this with major restaurant companies. Like, you guys need to think about this. So what this presentation is, is all about inspiration. It's gonna go fast. Please, like, you know, hang on to your questions at the end. I'd love to talk about it. And I could talk for hours. I, I like, I, I emailed these two yesterday, like, how long am I speaking? And they said like an hour, and I'm like, oh. So we're gonna have to go fast, because I could talk for hours. So let's go ahead and hit the magic button, if you would. So that's Kendall, great, you've been there. Hit the button. Okay, so this is what I get to do in my, in my life for those five years, go to places like Peru, where I was doing an inspection of a, of a wonderful school there in Lima. Um, we could talk about uh, Coca Pisco later, that's a whole separate topic. Hit the button, if you ever know what Pisco is, and Coca, Coca leaves Pisco, yeah, mm, bad combo. Or Brazil, where the world is sideways, and hanging out with all the students in a place called Natal, up on the northeast coast of Brazil, or, that was not a good day, uh, doing a little competition judging in, uh, in Costa Rica. You can see the look on all three of the judges' faces, including mine. <sighs> Yeah, it was one of those days. Hit the button, please. Or hanging out with uh, chefs who come to the US, like this good friend of mine from Marseille, and we're cooking in, um, in Wilmington, Delaware on that. Or this is kind of fun. This was in, a, uh, I think it was Sao Paulo, if I'm not mistaken, in, in Brazil. And in a market, and there was like a, a way to like, you could go underneath it and like pop up in the middle of all the fruits and stuff. And they thought I was insane, and this is like one of these you know, just normal vegetable market. And they're like, who's the weirdo, like, standing there? But the, what's really unique about this photo, and the reason I was there is, and we're gonna talk about this, just the, the, the incredible diversity of the fruits that you find all over the world. I mean, you think we get a lot here, and we do. Go to Whole Foods, my goodness, how much stuff is in Whole Foods today that wasn't there, or Whole Foods wasn't there 20 years ago? 30 years ago, think about what was in the grocery store, what we can find today, huge. And then you think like, wow, we in America, we have everything at our disposal, right? And then you go to Ecuador, you go to Brazil, you go to Colombia, and all of a sudden you discover, oh my gosh, I've never heard of these fruits. I've never seen these fruits before. In Brazil, one time, I'm eating a soup. Um, it's kind of an Amazonian soup. It was, one, it was kind of a slow food concept. And um, so it's served in a, little, in a little gourd shell, if you will, dried out gourd. And it's, it's a chicken soup with a couple pieces of dried shrimp in it. And like, like somebody took watercress and put it in the soup. So it's sort of like just got this soft, like smushy, seaweedy look. Right? And I'm like, okay, this is kind of cool. So you're drinking it. And then the, the greens kind of go in your mouth in one shot, right? And you have to kind of chew them a little bit before you swallow, right? Everything's good. And all of a sudden, my mouth is numb. I mean like at the dentist, numb. And I'm like, oh, and everybody at the table starts laughing. Well, that's an herb that you find in the Amazon uh, called jambu, and jambu uh, actually makes you go numb. And so like for a minute, I could feel nothing. I was freaking out a little bit. Um, and then it sort of tingles and comes back, right? Who knew this existed? It's unbelievable. So hit the button, please. Um, so this is what we're not gonna do. We're not gonna talk about stuff you could never find in the United States. 
Um, we're not going to talk about the you know thousands of varieties of potatoes you find in Chile, for instance. We're not going to talk about this incredible thing over here, which you might recognize the top, which is the cashew, and underneath it is the cashew fruit, which is principally not used. That's a huge mistake. If you go to Brazil, you know they have that incredibly delicious and very potent and very dangerous drink called a caipirinha, which, you know, you're hot, you're thirsty, you have one before dinner, you have two, and you, rem you don't remember dinner afterwards. So the deal is, though, that they make a caipirinha with the cashew fruit, and they muddle it in there, and there's chunks of it, and it has the most incredible flavor. There are certain foods I have to have when I go to certain places, and that's like one of the first things in Brazil, I want cashew fruit. Unfortunately, we just don't see it. So we're not going to talk about it, even though I just did. Or this one. This is a, a crazy um, cheese that comes from Romania. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's you know, we'll never find this here. It's an uh, unusual variety of sheep, makes sheep milk. And then they go out to the forest and they cut a piece of bark off the tree. And then they sew the bark into a cylinder. And then they pack the curds into it. And they age it in the bark. And then you just slice right through it. We're not going to talk about that. So, or this one, it's delicious, yeah, it's really good. Or this one, which is uh, a Bulgarian cheese, uh, blue cheese, right? Except it's never inoculated with anything. That all happens naturally. So they make the cheese, they put it up on the shelves around the house and stuff, and there's just natural mold flying in the air that does that there, and it happens to be amazing. We're not going to talk about it. You'll never see that here. This one we'll see here, but we're not going to talk about it because it's so expensive as those white truffle shavings fly onto the top of that risotto in the middle of a Barolo field in the Piedmont in Italy. We're not going to talk about that, but it was really good. It was fun. That was a three-hour dining experience. Or some of the weirdisms, like, you know, in Ecuador, there's a, a very famous market in Quito, um, which is called La Florenza, I believe, if I remember correctly. And, and it's kind of the place where you go to eat innards. It's the place where the poor people used to go, and now it's become popular. But popular in a weird way, because the people who are really popular and rich don't want to be seen there, so they send their drivers. <laughs> or they'll pull up in their big cars with the tinted windows, and somebody gets out and gets the, the intestines and runs back in the car, and they drive off. We're not going to talk about the grilled intestines or the tripe soup or the, the blood on a stick uh, in the Taipei train station or the uh, delicious worms down here served in Guadalajara, Mexico. We're not going to talk about that because that's not going to be popular in the U.S. Blood on a stick, while delicious, is a tough sell. <laughs> the worms are a little bit of a pop squirt. They're harder to sell. Or this one, this is called machito. Machito is, if you go to northern Mexico, uh, they, they, they have the cabrito, the little goats, that they cook, and then they take all the innards and they wrap them in their intestines and sort of turn it into sausages. Uh, it's called machito, and that's not for the faint of heart, or of course, lots of crickets. Or I saw this beautiful sous vide pork head uh, in, in China. I thought that was kind of neat, but probably not gonna, not, not gonna happen along with the fish head or the sea cucumber, or the most amazing cherry juice you've ever had if you are ever in Turkey. Drink sour cherry juice. It blows your mind, and it's like, it's like going to a restaurant, like, do you like the cherry juice or the orange juice? Or the, I mean, it's like, and here I am flipping out, like, oh 
my God, have you had this cherry juice? And they're all looking at me like, yeah. <laughs> or this one here, which in Saudi Arabia, there are restaurants, or excuse me, um, stores that only sell dates. That's all they sell, dates. And you walk in, there's like 15 varieties of dates or 20 varieties of dates. And you know, once again, you know, I, I'm, I'm going completely nuts. Like, oh, I gotta try that, I gotta try that. Oh my goodness, what is it? And you know, people are like, really? What's wrong with this guy? But they're amazing. If you don't like dates, if you think like medjool dates are really special, they're not. You go there, you have those dates, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I understand why dates are good. Okay, hit the button, please. So that's what we're not gonna, but we're gonna have fun. We will. You see, food, Food is all about hanging out and eating street food in Mexico City. This guy right here, by the way, is one of the most famous chefs in Mexico. Just great guy. Or in Brazil, just hanging out. Or that's a little bit outdated, and my daughter's always angry when I use that picture. But that's my daughter when she was quite a bit younger. She wasn't drinking it, okay? She just happened to pick it up, and I took the photo. Really? Okay. So this is what we're going to do. Just hit three more buttons real quick. All right, what's what we're gonna do? We're gonna talk about what I've seen. And we're not, this is like not, I'm not gonna give you research. I'm not gonna give you like, this is really important because I do study the trends. This is nothing, I'm not gonna sort of correlate it to any sort of trends. It's really about what I see and hopefully, maybe it gets you thinking about what's out there. Now I assume most of you aren't in the restaurant business, but still, to think about the great diversity that exists. And most importantly, if we think about what happens in our country, and we've made tremendous progress in, in offering authentic food. We have, think about Mexico, right? Think about where we've gone with Mexican food in this country. But while we can pat ourselves on the back and be like, wow, we're really doing well, we're much more authentic and we're much more, you know, we're, we're into foods, you know, we, we know what Ethiopian injara is, we know, we've still only scratched the surface of what's out there. I like to tell culinary students, I said, you know, if you're the kind of person who just loves to learn, if that's you, if you are okay with the concept that you will never know everything, and you will go to your grave and be like, you know, I wish I knew more about Thai food. I wish I really understood the, the food of Nepal. Then this is your business. Because you'll never, ever, ever know anything. Everything, I should say, not anything, everything. I've been to Mexico, I don't know how many times. Uh oh, I think we're losing this one. Been to Mexico many, many times. And every time I go to Mexico, I think I'm getting a handle on Mexico. I think I know Mexico. I, I worked all over Mexico. And every time I go there without fail, I learn something that was like, oh my goodness, I had no idea. Like for instance, in Northern Mexico, they serve a taco filled with pasta. Spaghetti, a spaghetti taco. And I had this in this restaurant and I was kind of like, oh, that's a clever idea. And they're like, oh, this is like, you know, normal. And it was kind of the food of the poor. Think about it. I mean, what are the two cheapest things you can put together? Pasta and tortillas. Why not? So they did. Anyways, hit the button if you would, please. Oh, by the way, that's the grossest hot dog imaginable. That's in Costa Rica, and there's like, like pineapple jam on it. And oh, good gosh, is it? This is. I mean, they're not going to let me back into Costa Rica. Okay, go ahead. 
So what are we gonna talk about? Let's, let's start with real Mexico. Um, this is something that bothers me. Bothers me a lot. We have had a bread revolution in our country. Thank goodness we have. We can get great bread everywhere, but guess what? Our tortillas are terrible. Our tortillas that we, we buy in the grocery store and heat up are sort of the equivalent of what would be the white, fluffy, squishy bread that I grew up on. It's not really what a tortilla is. Now, the problem with tortillas is that you have to make them and eat them. They're not really made so well to be made, kept in the refrigerator for a week um, at the grocery store, then you buy it and put it in your refrigerator for three days and then you heat it up a little bit. And no, that is not a tortilla. So a tortilla looks like this. This is a, a these are great photos from a, um, an outdoor restaurant in the city of Villahermosa, Mexico, uh, in Yucatan. Super hot, super humid. What you can't see is this lovely woman's sweat and she's making these, and her sweat's just kind of dripping, and you're like, you know, I'm sure there's salt in here now. <laughs> it's okay, they're cooked. And then she puts it over here on, the, on this enormous comal with a wood fire underneath it, and that is a, a, a clay comal. Real tortillas should be cooked on a clay comal. All right, and then you get a big stack like this, and they're served. That happens to be made with local corn, it's a special variety. Now, when, you, when I say that, everybody goes, wow, super shishi, special variety of corn. No, that's just what they have there. And it's kind of stone ground, it's incredible. Now, if you could hit the button, please. The point of this is, is that making tortillas is not hard. In fact, it's incredibly easy. In fact, it is the food of the poor people in Mexico. That is what, if you are, you know, if you have no money in Mexico, what they would typically do is cook a tortilla, take two fingers, dip it in some lard, spread it on there, a little salt, and some lime juice, and that was kind of what you ate. If you do that with our tortillas here in the United States, you're kind of like, I don't get it. You go to Mexico, you have a freshly made tortilla, you put a little bit of lard on it, a little lemon juice, or excuse me, not lemon juice, lime juice, a little salt, and you're like, where have you been my whole life? It's absolutely incredible. Or as I saw in another city in Mexico, this is really cool, because when you cook a tortilla, it puffs. When it's freshly cooked, like a pita, puffs. And what they do is they cook it on the comal, and when it's puffed up, they take it off, they rip the top off, they crack an egg, they, they drop the egg inside, they put it back in the comal, cook it a little bit, and you have basically a cooked egg inside of a tortilla that you can like walk and eat. Incredible. This is my point. There's no reason why we in the United States can't be making, especially in all of our Mexican restaurants, tortillas to order. It's not like this is some complicated process. You make the masa, you can do it by hand, which he is a very proficient uh, baker. I am not. He was showing me how to do it, and mine kept falling on the floor and were irregular, and his were like, boop, 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 done. But if you don't want to learn that, which is really hard, just get a press and it's done. Super simple. And I would encourage all of you, if you've never done this, get some masa, do this, and you'll be like, oh wow, I get it. Hit the button if you would, please. Or did you know that there are literally thousands of indigenous breads in Mexico? Thousands. We tend to see something like called a concha, 
pretty often. It's just that little seashell looking thing on top of the sugar paste on top of a bun. And even those, if you go to Pilsen, you can find good ones. But the problem with those are they're great when they're fresh. And they're not when they're not fresh. Those are like a baguette. You eat them the same day. Second day, uh-uh. There's a place in Mexico City, breakfast place, inside of a hotel that's, that's famous because what they do is they serve conchas. Conchas, right here. And the conchas are cooked, brought to you hot, and you think you are in heaven as you're eating these things because they're so fresh. The point is, we in the United States, it's kind of a funny thing. We share a Mexico that, or share a border with Mexico that currently is not without a wall. <laughs> we won't go there. Um, and the point is, how many of these other pastries have you seen? And this is, this is just a little snapshot. There is a richness and a diversity of pastries and a pastry tradition in Mexico that we simply do not know. And that's kind of funny, given the, our close proximity to Mexico. I'm going to move away from Mexico in a second, but just one last little side note to Mexico. I personally find it sort of a travesty that most of the population in the United States has really no clue of the amazing cultural and culinary heritage in the country that borders us on the south. Shocking. More people know stuff about Thai food than they do Mexican, real Mexican food. So, just my side note. Yes, hit the button, please. Oh, of course, we gotta do these real Mexico ones. Like, for instance, this one, okay, tacos al pastor, pretty, getting more well-known. But look, the idea of putting meat, pork, on a vertical cooker with a pineapple, which oftentimes is actually at the top, not the bottom, but whatever, um, slicing it onto tortillas and serving it is not a concept that is unusual to us. Why don't we see it everywhere? We see gyros. But why don't we see tacos al pastor? Because they're way better than gyros. By the way, if, if for those of you who are really like solid culinary historians, you will probably tell me at some point, this is not really Mexican. And that's true. It's only from the 1950s, okay? It actually comes from the Middle East. Into Puebla, of course, then it was done with lamb. You hit Mexico, what happens? It turns into pork. We marinated in you know Mexican stuff, vinegar and and, and um, achiote, and, and we do this. But amazing thing, we don't see it in this country. Or this one, this is la sopa seca de fideo, which is this. First time I had it, I was in a place. And I said, I, I want soup. And I, oh wow, a, a little noodle soup. Oh, that'll be nice. I missed the word seca, which means dry, right? But whatever. And out comes this pasta dish. I'm like, what? Sopa soup. Did I miss something? No, this is it. And so what they do, it actually cooks. You cook these little vermicelli noodles in the style of a risotto. So you put in liquid and the liquid all soaks into it and then it's done. And it's, and it's cooked in a liquid that is really flavorful, chipotle, tomato, onion. If I was a Mexican, that would be my comfort food. Cream, avocado, this is just amazing. Or all the different moles, which is a whole different topic. But mole is a fascinating thing. We think we know mole in this country. We have no clue of the rich diversity of mole that exists in Mexico. I mean, diversity, diversity. 
And it's sort of like your mother's spaghetti sauce. Everybody debates who's got the best mole. It's, well, this one has a little more plantain, and I like a little bit more. It's, it's that. It's such a complex sauce to make. Right up there with Indian curries. Incredible complexity to make great moles and all the different varieties. Or, of course, this one, myself having taught sausage making for years. This is a sausage that typically comes from Toluca, which is a city way high up, close to Mexico City. And it's chorizo verde, the, the green sausage. It's literally green. And it's green because they put lettuce into it and herbs into it and green chilies into it. And you cook it and you eat it with, of course, freshly made tortillas. And it, who would have thunk it? Incredible food. And of course, we can cook underground. These are both pretty well-known now. I mean, I shouldn't say well-known, but getting more well-known, which is the barbacoa and the cochinita. The barbacoa is the lamb that's cooked underground. The cochinita is the little pigs cooked underground. But this is the point. They don't necessarily have to be cooked underground. In fact, some of the most famous barbacoa places, it's, they actually have sort of like these cookers, which are just cement cookers, and they put everything in there, cover it, slow cook it, and it works. I will tell you just one interesting little tidbit. The cochinita pibil, which comes from the Yucatan, slow-cooked pig, baby pig, the point is, when you go there, if you have the real ones, and again, this, is not like a, this isn't like real ones expensive, it's like real ones like, oh, I'll have a tortilla, oh, it's 75 cents, okay. The real ones are made from a local pig, a variety of pig, called the pelon negro, which is the black bald pig. And kid you not, it's like a black hairless pig. And that particular pig has a sweetness to the flesh that is amazing. How much, we don't know. Please. Or this one. This is, my, this is the dish I have to have when I go to Guadalajara. Guadalajara, famous for mariachis and, and tequila. Um, tortas ahogadas, for Spanish-speaking people in the group, torta is a sandwich, and ahogada means drowned. And it literally is, again, street food. None of this is fancy. This is, these, the, our, the, our chefs in Mexico City, or in Guadalajara, sent me this photo. And I love the photo, but it's so not really what it is. Because you typically get it in like some sort of disposable paper thing, and, it's, and you eat it, and it's messy, and it gets all over your hands, and it's street food. And what it basically is, is you put pork inside of this wonderful bolillo, this, this wonderful bread, and then you have a sauce over there, which is a really thin tomato sauce, which sometimes, depending on who you talk to, is a combination of orange soda and tomato sauce, along with some chili. Or orange, you know, juice, but a lot of people will tell me sort of wink, wink, orange soda. In any case. You, you pour it over the top and literally it drowns the sandwich to the point where the bread is almost kind of falling apart. It is wickedly messy to eat. It is wickedly delicious to eat. And it's one of those things that, you know, this could be a street food in the US in two seconds. There's nothing that Americans wouldn't absolutely love. Think meatball sandwich on steroids and spicy, really good. Or in Mexico, the paletas, the, these, these incredible popsicles. And I will say that the, the paletas that I've had in the U.S. Um, that are called paletas, are, are, they're okay. The ones in Mexico, this, is, this was taken on the street in a city called Queretaro, Mexico. And these 
the, the flavors and the intensity of the flavors is incredible. I mean, it's not like raspberry with like, you know, flavor, color, sugar water. No, no, this is like intense. And some of the sort of more savory combinations are interesting with cucumber or with mango and chili and very interesting stuff. Great, interesting flavors. Please. All right, let's, let's jump south, shall we? So let's go to South America, arepas. So we talked about tortillas. Tortillas have come to America. Arepas are starting. Arepa is a thick tortilla. Think of it as a big, thick, corn-based tortilla. And oh, by the way, just going back to Mexico for a second, you know there is corn and flour tortillas, right? In the north of Mexico, that's where you have flour tortillas. In the south, you have corn. If you've ever been to the north, north of Mexico, the flat, if, if, if you think like a real tortilla is a corn tortilla, by all means, when you're there, eat their flour tortillas. It is like, I can't even begin to explain it. It makes our flour tortillas truly look like the white fluffy bread. I mean, it's like no comparison at all. Arepas, bigger, thicker tortillas, a little bit more sort of chunky to, to, to chew on, incredibly delicious. And have, these have a place not only in like Venezuelan and Colombian restaurants, but there's no reason in the world that you couldn't use this as a vehicle for any other flavor combinations out there. The advantage, they're delicious, they cook really fast. You don't have to rise it, you don't have to, you just make them, boom, on your comal, done. This is a special one which I, I'd love to talk about. This was in a restaurant in Bogota, and it's a recipe, um, that's, that's called uh, arepas de choclo. Choclo means uh, fresh corn. And so when I say corn, please understand that the corn down there is not the same corn as here. It's bigger kernels, okay, kind of enormous kernels. A little more starch in them, but still sweet. And, and what they do is they essentially make this, so these are made from corn meal, essentially, and these are made from fresh corn that are put into a blender with a couple eggs, and so they're very tender. And one of the things that they do in Colombia, which is something that we really can bring to our country, and I'll talk about this in a slide or so, is this combination of sweet salty. Sweet salty is big down there, sweet salty. In this case, this is kind of sweet, and then you put a salty farmer's cheese in it, you fold it over, you melt it on the comal. Here you can see the cheese sort of oozing out and it's euphoric. It's just absolutely delicious. One of those moments I was sitting there like, why, why isn't somebody doing this in the US? Because it's out of this world. Which I'm gonna jump to this one next because we're still in Colombia here. This is quintessentially, I think, the food that you could start like, you could do this at the state fair, okay? You gotta change the name because it's really hard to pronounce aborajada. But what is it? It is everything Americans want. It's sweet, it's gooey, it's fatty, it's salty, and of course, it's fried. <laughs> so what is it? It's the outside of it is plantain that's cooked and sort of smashed, and then you put a piece of kind of Mm, stronger, saltier mozzarella kind of in the middle, and then you batter it, and then you deep fry it. And when you bite into it, it looks like this. 
and the cheese oozes out, and it goes crunch on the outside. And I was in this restaurant eating this, and I was just like, oh my gosh, this is like crazy. It's so delicious and so American. While we're talking about other crunchy stuff, this is something out of Ecuador, another tradition that very, very popular there, should be in every steakhouse in America. It's called a yapingacho. Yapingachos are, now remember, you know, we're in the Andes now. Andes potatoes, birthplace of potato. Anything with potato is amazing. So these are, yapingachos are uh, mashed potatoes with anato, so they're, they're yellow, all right, achiote, anato, same thing, uh, with a little bit of like cheese in the middle, and then they're fried. So crunchy, soft, gooey, I mean, what's not to love? And so I could see, on, you know, and then they sometimes serve it sort of all gussied up if you want. This is what you'd see on the street. This is what you'd see in a restaurant, maybe some little onion and tomato on top of it or something. The point is, you know, you think about it, you go to a steakhouse, they say, you know, we like uh, mashed potatoes, uh, french fries, baked potato, or yapingacho. You know, and this is the point I make to restaurateurs is, okay, why do you want to be like everybody else? You have to find those things that allow you to just move a little off center that isn't like, you know, would you like to have our roasted guinea pig tonight? That would be a little bit like, uh-huh. <laughs> or would you like to have a yapingacho? Oh, okay, that's a little bit better. Who's that guinea pig, anybody? Yeah, delicious, isn't it? Yeah, the problem with guinea pig is the way they serve it. You know, I mean, I had, the first time I had it, it was sous vide in our school in Ecuador. They cooked it for like 12 hours and they pulled, them, pulled the meat apart and everything. It was delicious. Then when I actually saw it as they were serving it on the street, you're like, yeah, we got to work on the presentation. It's, um, you know, basically skinned and like teeth and nails. It's just beautiful. When I came back from Ecuador, I was talking to my daughter when she was young who happened to have guinea pigs as pets. And she's like, Daddy, what did you eat? And I said, well, honey, I had guinea pigs. Oh, the look I got. <laughs> this look of like, Daddy, you've betrayed me. And she said to me, she said, Daddy, those are pets. And I said, yes, but down there, they're food. <laughs> Anyways, empanadas. We do stuff with empanadas in this country, but again, barely scratching the surface. You see so many varieties of empanadas from Mexico all the way down to Chile. Incredible stuff, like tamales also, same thing. So many different varieties. But this one, for instance, is an unusual one from Ecuador. It's called an empanada de viento. So it's actually, viento means wind, and so it's, it's this big thing, like this big, and it has a piece of cheese in it, and it puffs up big the wind, and then they put a whole bunch of sugar on top, and you, and you eat it with this sort of rice, warm rice porridge. Now remember, in, in like where this is, Quito, Ecuador, you're way up in the Andes Mountains, and it gets cold at night, and so having something that's fried and hot with this beverage that's, that's warm, super comforting, and there's no reason that couldn't be a tremendous breakfast food in the United States. No reason in the world. This one comes from the city of San Luis Potosi in Mexico. It's called an empanada, but it's really a little bit more of a quesadilla, kind of, but they call them um, empanadas. And this is a, a, a tremendous idea 
and famous there. I mean, people leave San Luis Potosí with, with you know, like boxes of these things. Um, what's unique about them is the coloration on it. They actually take chile huajillos and blend them into the masa on the outside, you know, that, that, as on the outside, put cheese in the middle, and they're just incredible, just incredible. If you would, please. Okay, this one, I'm dying to have somebody do this. When I had my TV show, I did this on a TV show, hoping that somebody would, would do this. Um, this is one of the weirdest experiences I've had. I was sitting in Northeast uh, Brazil, a um, bunch of us after work, sitting at a table, and out of the corner of my eye, I see the person who's sort of cooking on the stove. Stove, I mean, it's, you know, it's a burner on the street, right? And, and what she does is she takes like a strainer, and in the strainer is this white powder, and she kind of goes shh, and like this like snow falls from the white, from the strainer into the saute pan. There's nothing in the saute pan, nothing, no fat, no nothing, just into a hot saute pan. And then I watch her, and like 20 seconds later, she takes the pan and goes, and it like flips up like a pancake and lands on the other side. And I'm like, and you know, I'm like, you know, excuse me. I get up and I'm like, this is like magic. I mean, it's like powder into a dry saute pan and boom, you have this amazing thing. And they serve this thing with savory ingredients or with sweet ingredients. And it's called... Tapioca, that's actually what you call it, which is, and it's made from, well, tapioca. Just like, you know, somebody in Brazil once told me, said, you Americans, you're made from wheat. Mexicans are made from corn. We are made from manioca or tapioca. That's their sustenance food. And so what this is, this is a crazy thing. I mean, it's so crazy. You take this powder, you take the, the starch, you put just a bare amount of water in it, so it, it doesn't hold together. You have to put it in a strainer so it doesn't clump, so it sort of falls evenly. And then, the starches, there's enough liquid in there that the starches can actually bind together. And it makes this like weird, chewy, not stringy, it's like, I don't know how to describe it. It's crunchy on the outside and sort of sort of rubbery in the middle, but not in a bad way. Absolutely delicious. This, I, I swear, if somebody did this like at a breakfast buffet, like where they're like, would you like an omelet? Would you like scrambled eggs? You know, it's like, <sighs> or would you like a tapioca grill? What is that? And you do the whole thing in front of them. Whoa, be crazy. All right, hit the button. Uh, same thing for show. This is out of... Um, uh, Malaysia. It's actually, I've been told it's more of a Thai dish, but it's out of Malaysia. It's called nasi goreng pattaya. And, and once again, this is, if I was Malaysian, this would be my go-to comfort food. So it's sort of like their version of fried rice. But the really cool thing is, right in front of you, they, they make this enormous um, omelet. Very, very thin. Then they take it, they throw it in a bowl, they fill it with the rice, wrap it up, flip it over, and serve it to you and put chili sauce on top. Now, I, 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 to this day, when I tell people Malaysia, <laughs> when I go to Malaysia, I'm like, I gotta have nasi goreng pattaya. They're always like, why? For me, there's something magical about this egg thing on the outside, this incredibly umami-rich rice thing in the middle, and that little bit of sweet chili stuff on the top. 
it works. That is a perfect lunch item. Perfect lunch item in the United States. There's nobody who would eat that and be like, oh gross, an omelet. Out of this world. This is kind of crazy. I always worry about raw things. Whenever I'm in a country and people want me to eat raw things, I, I always have this like thing in the back of my head like, oh, is this a week of dysentery? And so I was in China and they brought this beautiful piece of beef to the table uh, in a very nice restaurant, totally raw, and I'm like, oh no. <laughs> and then before I could sort of think about like, should I or shouldn't I, out comes the waiter with the handy dandy blowtorch and cooks it right there on your plate, right in front of you. It was very, very thin slice. I thought it was kind of cool. Anyways, this is um, another thing for show. Um, when I was in our, in our campus in Ecuador, the first time I was there, I, I, walked, I was walking through a touring, I'd never been there before, and I looked into this kitchen and there's a bunch of students making sorbet with a bowl, on a bowl with ice and salt, and they're stirring, and stirring, and stirring. And I thought to myself, man, I'm really sorry they don't have an ice cream machine. This just sucks, you know. I mean, really, it was just, just like, you know, this is like one of these moments I'm not proud of because it was like my Americanism where I was like, you guys should buy an ice cream machine. Little did I know that that is actually a very traditional preparation called helado de paila. And paila refers to this, this bronze uh, bowl. And this, this concept goes back, I mean, a long time. And they would bring snow from the mountains and they would make this. Now, you can, and this would, traditionally there would be hay or grass or whatever above the, the, the snow to keep it insulated so it wouldn't melt fast. Um, the crazy thing about this is, I've been to some restaurants over there where they're actually doing this in the dining room. like, And it's really cool because people love to watch this. And the reality is what they make. If you know anything about ice cream, there's a term called overrun. Overrun is the amount of air you put into it as it churns. The more overrun, the cheaper the ice cream is at the store because, well, you're buying air, okay? And you have to have some, otherwise it's an ice cube and it's not very nice. But the crazy thing about this is you get so little overrun, and this is the point. When you make it by hand, it wasn't that they didn't have an ice cream machine. This is the traditional way of doing it. And they did this and did this, and the flavors you, you get are so intense because it's not all fluffed up. It's, it's truly the best ice cream, best sorbet, it's actually sorbet, of my life. And then they do it with flavors. It's crazy. I skipped this one because it's not very interesting, but a good concept for others. Um, Chinese hot pots, yeah, stuff you can do. We see this more now. Um, but what's curious about China is when you do the hot pots, just the diversity of stuff. Yeah, this is just one picture of. Go ahead, we're going to skip over some of this. Skip that one. Oh, we're going to spend time on this one. How many of you, be honest with me? How many of you, within the last 48 hours, ate your meal with your fingers? Okay. That wasn't a sandwich. <laughs> or a hamburger. Or a hot dog. Okay. So I was in, I was in um, we were working on a concept in Japan. And I was working with a two-star Michelin sushi chef in Tokyo. And I had, I had lunch at his place. Um, incredible lunch extremely expensive, 
15 people in the restaurant. And he made the first little bit of sushi, handed it over, and I looked at my counterpart, and I don't speak Japanese, and he didn't speak English, but the, thankfully the guy with me spoke both, so he could be the translator. And I looked at him like, wow, chopsticks. And, and he was like, hmm, you don't do chopsticks. Part of the experience is actually touching it. And he said that that was the chef's philosophy, that we're not going to give you chopsticks because chopsticks removes you a little bit from the food you eat. I've thought about that, and I've noticed throughout the world there are a bunch of cultures that, that eat with their fingers. You know, go to India, you know? Or this example in Jordan. Uh, this is the National Dish of Jordan. Anyone has been there? You don't find this in a restaurant. You have to go to somebody's house, uh, typically, because it's, 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 it's a, a, this is not a good picture. Usually it's this picture. <laughs> and when I went to somebody's house to have mensif, well, what mensif is is you take this, this little egg thing, which is you know, like the size of a softball, kind of, maybe. It's called a jamid. The best one comes from a place called um, Jamid. Uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank. Um, it's not Krakow because that's Poland. Karak, that's what from Karak. And the deal is, if you go back and you think historically, okay, I'm in the desert. Uh, I, I milk my animals. I have excess milk. What do we do with excess milk? Well, hmm. You can't just drink it, I mean, it'll go bad relatively quickly. So we'll turn it to yogurt, right? So yogurt, lots of yogurt over there, and it also makes it easier to, to digest. But then there's a point at which, what do you do with the extra yogurt? I mean, there's only so much you can eat, right? And so what they would do is they would salt it and dry it. And the jamid, if you put it in a cannon and fired it at somebody, you know, you could kill them. I mean, it's like, it's like rock hard and stinky, like, the underside of a sheep, okay? In a good way, if you like stinky cheese, okay? And then what they do is they would, so imagine if you're in the desert, um, you don't kill an animal and then like hang it for a while because, you know, you don't, right? If you read the Bible, what do they do? They kill the fatted calf and eat it right away. There's a small window before rigor mortis sets in where you can cook the animal. So what they would do is, you know, kill the, the, the young uh, lamb, and then they would make a mixture out of this. They would grate it, put it in water, make like a thin sauce, and cook it in it. It's stupid delicious. I mean, it's so, so good. But the way you eat it is so fun. So imagine, you're at this, around this big table, and there's this huge platter in the middle, and there's like flatbread on the bottom, rice on top, and this pile of chunks of lamb that have been cooked in the jamid. And then you put a whole bunch of you know, sauteed nuts, pine nuts, almonds on top. Okay. And then I didn't know, I, you know, I didn't know what was gonna happen. And all of a sudden I'm like, the guys are like taking off their sport coats and their suit coats and they're like rolling up their sleeves. So I'm like, I better do this like I know what I'm doing, right? So take my mind. And then they told me how you eat this. It's not polite if your fingers touch your lips. Now think about that. How do you eat rice and, and lamb without, with your finger, without, you know? How many of you play marbles? You know, like this, right? 
So the deal is you take a little bit of that rice, you put a little extra sauce on it to make it a little sticky, you sort of form like a little ball in your hand, you rip a little piece of lamb, sort of put it on top or stick it in, and then what you do is you kind of go, I have to do a side of it, it's like, like that. And if all goes well, it flies perfectly into your mouth. <laughs> they were fine. I had to send my shirt to the dry cleaners that evening when I got back to the hotel because <laughs> it took a little while. But, it, but this is the thing. Have you watched kids eat with their fingers? If you watch kids eat with their fingers, it's fun. And while we are so proper in our Western way of thinking that we have to have a fork and a knife and we have to, I encourage you the next time you have like beef stew, just eat it with your fingers. And why don't we have a restaurant concept around that? You know, think about that. In our restaurant, there's no silverware. <laughs> Enjoy. Wash your hands, sinks over there, and afterwards you wash your hands. I, it's fun. And every time I've eaten with my fingers, whatever country it's in, I'm always reminded of the fact that this is just a blast. Mensif is pretty good. Or how much can we put on a stick? This is a global concept. I mean, this is the night market in Taipei. I mean, everything is on a stick. This, this is the most interesting hot dogs you've ever seen on a stick. And this is really cool. Now this one is on a stick in Mexico, which I think people are pretty familiar with, the mayonnaise. And this is really cool. So what they do is they take the, the, uh, the corn and imagine this in a restaurant. Imagine walking in and seeing this and smelling it. And by the way, just being like a restaurateur for a minute, how much does corn cost? Not much. How much could I mark that up? A lot. <laughs> so what you do is you, you take the corn and it goes in this thing and it's hot underneath, like really hot, and it just spins. It's like a little mini corn rotisserie until the corn is nice and brown. And then they brush it with like, um, with like a dough that has a decidedly sesame flavor and sprinkle some sesame seeds and then they cook it a little bit more until that gets crunchy on the outside, they pull it off and they give it to you. <coughs> now, for all of us good Midwesterners who love our corn, you can, can't you see it? Crunch, sesame, salty, sweet, succulent, juicy. Mm. It's good stuff. Okay. Uh, edible containers, <coughs> how much can we do that we don't see in this country? Now, I will tell you, I, I, I'm breaking my rule. This one you will never see in this country, okay? And even in Mexico, it's, it's, it's hard to find. It's the lining of the maguey leaves. They actually pull it off. The problem is it, it's damaging to the plant, obviously. Um, and then they take this and they cook stuff in it, called a michote. That's the, now you can have michote cooked in other stuff, but traditionally it's cooked in this little fabric here. Right, just peel off those maguey leaves. Or this one from Asia, which is the, the yu, um, uh, yuba. So it's the, it's the dried skin of the soy milk, which you can find in Chicago. Why aren't we doing more with that? You soak it in water, it has this incredibly delightful sort of chewy texture. And then you can do things like this, this addition in Malaysia where you wrap meat inside of it. And they, and they cooked it. Out of this world, delicious. Hit the bottom. Lots more containers in the world we're not going to go into this, except, yeah, let's give it. Well, it's, you know, tamales. Oh my gosh, tamales. Hit the button. Um, who likes tamales? Okay. Um, how many of you go to Pilsen for tamales? 
Really? Can I give you a hint? Um, look up, if you want good, great tortillas in Chicago, there's a place called Popocatepetl. I cannot spell that for you. It's the name of the big volcano outside of Mexico City, the big pointed one, Popocatepetl. And that's the name of the tortilla factory in Pilsen. I'll try to spell it later. It's P-O-P something. Um, you go in there, the tortillas are incredibly fresh. I mean, like, warm, fresh. Go in there, get them for that day, they're delicious. But across the street is a nice lady who lives in that house, who I'm sure doesn't have any food handler anything, who has incredibly delicious uh, esquites and tamales, and she'll give you both kinds, the Oaxacan and the banana leaf, or the more common in Mexico, which is in the corn husk, for like a buck. So get your tortillas, walk across the street, get her tamale, sit there on the street and just eat that thing and you will not regret it. It's so good. Okay, soups. Next, next one. Um, I just want to point you out that, you know, we don't know soups. We think we know some soups. The world is made of soups. Every country has soups, has, and they're typically very rustic, cheap things to make that tend to have the most luscious, delicious flavors I can think of. Now, before I get into these over here, I just want to draw your attention to this one. This was a restaurant, I don't remember where in China, that was brilliant. If you're like me, how many times do you have soup and it's kind of mm, hot? I want my soup hot so that I can have a conversation with somebody and still eat my soup and still have it be hot. That soup, they put the chicken soup in there, they put the lid on, and they put it in a steamer. And they cook it in the steamer so that when it comes out of that steamer, that soup is hot, hot, hot. And I was blown away at how hot it was and also the shape of the container. It's not some big open bowl that us chefs love to do because it looks cool. The problem with that basic laws of physics is the soup gets cold pretty quick because of the surface area, right? This, oh my gosh. And I had a similar experience at a hotel in India and I got, was there late at night, had room service. I got some quick soup and it came up and I can, I can, tried to describe it, the shape of the container was like this, and then it opens up with a lid on. It was the hottest soup I've ever had delivered to my room. I mean, it was piping hot. We get, you know, anyways. You're gonna, Deb, we made locro, right? Yes. Is it good? Just say yes. Yes, yes. it's great. <laughs> if it's not good, it's her fault. No, 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 because it's pork, I didn't taste it. So you need to oh, okay. right All right. So locro, I mean, I can talk about these. These are Colombian soups, ajiaco and soncochos. Um, ajiaco is, is a celebration of the potatoes of Colombia. It's just, now I've been told, and go online, look, at, look up ajiaco, but I've been told that there is a Colombian grocery store somewhere in Chicago you can get the Colombian potatoes. If that is true, you can make ajiaco, and it's stupid good. <laughs> so good. But I want to draw your attention to locro. The first time I was in, in Ecuador, I had this soup, and it was one of those like moments of, oh, oh wow. 
Now, part of it is locro is a potato soup. So of course we got the same problem with the potatoes, okay? But it's made, it's, it's peasant soup. But it's, it's how it's made that for me, it speaks to me. And anyone I've ever made it for has been like, yeah, that's really good. So it's, it's potato soup flavored with achiote, so it's yellow, but it's what happens afterwards. And you put in chunks of avocado and chunks of farmer's cheese into it. And the farmer's cheese softens a little bit. And there's something crazy about that combination of avocado and potato soup together that is just delicious. So we made some locro. I didn't make it. Deb made the locro. I hope you enjoy it today. So. Next one, please. Okay, flatbreads. I'm just going to go over this really fast, but um, are we doing on time? Okay. Flatbreads, we don't know flatbreads in this country. We think we do. We've, we've sort of pat ourselves on the back and say, yep, I know what a naan is. Great. We don't know flatbreads, just like we don't know tortillas. The world is full of flatbreads, fascinating flatbreads. And these, these photos are from India. I've spent a lot of time in the last few years in India. And every time I'm there, you know, between the dosas and the, and the paratas and the lacha paratas, this, this, this is one of, and this is not my best photo. I always feel sorry for the young lady in this photo because like a lot of people have seen her now. That was one of those moments in my life. It was actually the night before where, have you had that experience where you're eating something and like the clouds part? You know, and the sun shines down, and you, you swear there are angels. Not the kind of green fairies that comes from absinthe, that's different. But the, the, the angels kind of singing. This was my moment. I went to the city of Bangalore, and I was there, got into the hotel late at night, went to the kind of restaurant they were setting up for breakfast. I was the only one in there. I'm like, can I just get something? I'm starving. And they're like, oh, so I set a quick table. This will be my shout out, by the way, if you're ever in India. The, place you need to stay at is the ITC hotels, period. They're the best, but whatever. So I'm in this hotel, in this hotel. and um, guy gives me a menu. I have a quick go in fish curry, and I said, you know, I'll take a couple, um, yeah, these lacha prata things. Yeah, sure, great. He brings me the, the, the fish curry and these lacha paratas. Now, lacha prata is a special flatbread that's made in a way where you're kind of sort of creating puff pastry a little bit, okay? So it, it, it's you, you, br you roll it, you brush it with, with ghee, you know, clarified butter sort of, um, and then you roll it up like a carpet, and then you roll it like a turban, and then you roll it flat again. So what you've done is you've created sort of irregular layers of butter throughout the thing, and then you slap it on the, the tendor oven and cook it. <laughs> He brought me two of these about yay big, and, and I can't describe it, it gives me goosebumps. It was, it was one of those moments where I, I bit into this thing, it was perfectly crunchy on the outside, and it would just sort of come apart where those butter seams were, and it was rich, and it was hot, and it was steamy. And I, literally, I mean, it was like, it was a, it was a moment, okay? And, so the waiter comes back a little while later and says, you know, is everything okay? And I said, no. And he you know, gets his look like, you know. And, and, I, and I opened up the bread basket, the, the napkin. I said, you only gave me two? <laughs> he said, would you like more? I said, please. I mean, that was one of those moments where it just, it was so apparent to me that everything I thought I knew, I didn't. And these are not crazy hard things to do. This is not 
difficult. So if we get the button, please. And then you see, you know, this is breakfast. I mean, you know, we were talking about our great breakfast place, you know, <laughs> Inez and ugh, so many memories there. But the thing I always, I always wonder about breakfast is if you read the trend data, the trend data will tell you most people, like 90-some percent, want food that's sort of recognizable for breakfast. Where at dinner, it's more flipped over. You'll try stuff. In breakfast, we tend to be a little more reserved. And I think part of that is, is breakfast is the time when you're sort of you know, waking up to the world and you, you want familiar. And, but having said that, at Kendall, for a bunch of years, we ran an international breakfast station and that was the most popular station we had. Because people also get tired of eggs and pancakes and French toast and oatmeal. At some point, you want something like this. And I really do believe that, that you know, my, my critique of a lot of breakfast places is they don't push the envelope. Ina's did, which was really fun. That was why I liked going there. But most places, they're, they're, they're very, very boring. And my belief is, okay, you can order, you can have the boring stuff, but why not push the envelope a little bit? This here is called an idli. And an idli is made from fermented lentils. In India, they have a whole huge um, array of pastries made from lentils. I, I mean, like, I walked into a store one time in the city of Jaipur, and there's a 30-foot counter, so I'm a counter display case with like four shelves, so you can imagine how much real estate that is, right? Mm -hmm. Filled with little amounts of pastries, so you can imagine how many varieties, and everything in the shop was made from lentils. And I went bonkers. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can try one and try one and try one. And what really made them mad is that they sold them by the kilo, and everyone had different kilo amounts. And I'm like, can I have two of those and two of those and one of those? And they're like, so we bought, I don't know, like four kilos of pastries that day. Um, hit the button if you Chiles. Oh, yes, we do know our chiles now. We know about anchos and pasillas and guajillos and cascabels and all that. Great. Or do we? I've had a couple of discoveries that I just want to share with you and maybe somebody like at a spice company could maybe get these sometime just maybe and I just want to draw your attention to the first two I mean aji is the name of a chili in South America which was a funny conversation with my colleagues in Chile one time and I'm like why don't you guys call them chiles and not aji and he looked at me and says, well, that would be like if they were called the United States of America in your country. Get it? Chiles in Chile? Anyways. The Chiles in Chile. This is a variety of Chile called a cacha de cabra, which is the, the horn of the goat. And it's from the Mapuche, so it's the southern sort of tribe, uh, southern part of, of, of Chile, very, very... Um, they were the tribe that was never conquered. They were um, very, very tough warriors. And um, what they do with these, they dry these over fire, so they're smoky, and then they grind it up with a little bit of salt and maybe a little cumin or coriander, depending. It's not hot, hot. It has just enough of a tickle. 
and an incredibly rich flavor that I have at any given point in my house, like a kilo of this stuff, and we put it on everything. And it, it, I think you put a speaker. I'll stand here. How's that? Um, incredible. Oh, the other one, which is from Turkey, is called Isot. And Isot is a, another variety of chili, but, but it's sun-dried. And so the color is very, very dark, almost purple. And because it sun-dries, it kind of ferments a little bit. And I'm hoping the flavor is just incredibly rich, incredibly deep. And when my students come back from Turkey now, because I'm not going there so much, I'm like, can you bring a kilo of isat? And they're like, really? Yeah, it's incredible. Many, 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 many more chilies that we know about. This one down here is a weirdo chili. That's a white chili. And that comes from the country, the little country of Bhutan. And they take the green chilies and blanch them and then put them on the rooftops and dry them and they turn white. Kind of funky. Plantains, let's just say we don't do enough with plantains in this country at all. But I'm not going to go there. Um, just a shout out for Turkish food. Um, yeah, we have Turkish food in Chicago, but it is one of the greatest, richest foods uh, in the world. Because it was at that point geographically where everybody overran them and everybody you know left a bit of their roots there and because they were at the epicenter of so much they inherited so much and and the foods that you encounter over there are just magical um, that one on the left I'm dying for somebody to do this now there if, if you know if you're an eggplant person uh, Turkey's the place for you. They have the best eggplant in the world, hands down, period. And it's something about the variety. I've tried to get the seeds back here, so I'll let you know that it's recorded. I didn't really bring them back, no. Um, and what they do is they, they, they roast that whole. Talk about show, this is really cool. They roast the whole, they come to your table. And in front of you, they peel back the skin on the top. They take the inside, which is now custardy, soft, and hot, and sort of cut it up a little bit. And then olive oil, salt, pepper, some, you know, some herbs, sort of mix it up a little bit and serve it to you. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's like with some warm pita. That's all right, go ahead, hit the button. Or this one, which is a pide. No reason in the world this couldn't be incredibly popular in the US. It's basically like a flatbread that's folded over a little bit with all kinds of fillings inside, eggs, um, meats. You know, talk about great breakfast food on the run. And then this one on the left. I mentioned to you in a lot of these slides what would be my comfort food if I happened to be living in Ecuador or an Ecuadorian or a Mexican. This would be my comfort food if I was a Turkish person on the left. We think that pasta is something that is you know, Chinese or, or Italian, but the reality is pasta is everywhere. And the concept of a ravioli exists across the world. Maybe it's deep fried, but it's, it's a simple concept. It's dough with something inside. I mean, how hard is that, right? This is nuts. If you're in Turkey, do not miss eating manta. And manta, this is a really bad photo because you don't understand, those raviolis are this big. They're itty bitty tiny and they used to be the test for marriage. So if you were a woman, you had to make, and I forget what it was, it's like you had to be able to fit on a serving spoon like 20 or 30 little raviolis. And if you can make lots of little ones, somehow that made you fit for marriage. I have no idea how that works out, but that's the, <laughs> that's what I was told many times. 
And it's, it's filled with lamb, and then you put yogurt on top, and then you sprinkle lamb ghee on top, and then some of the, the chili, and you, it's, I can't describe it, it's magical. Um, or the rice pudding on the, on the bottom right, which is the best rice pudding you've ever eaten. So. Lots of possibilities. Okay, wrap up with a few beverage ideas. Okay, who drinks tequila? Who drinks a lot of tequila? You can, come on, I'm not the only one. All right, the deal is this. Um, in Mexico, tequila is not what we think it is in this country, and, I, and I'm dying for somebody to do this, like really like get this going. Because tequila is not this. It's not the lick, shoot it, squeeze the lime, right? It's not that, nobody does that. That's, that's, like, that's for Americans in Mexico, okay? Tequila sipped. I've been served tequila at lunches, at dinners. I mean, it's just, it's like a normal part of life. It's not, hey, let's get some tequila. It's not at that at all. And the way you drink it is like this. It's called the bandera, or the flag. It's green, white, and red. Green is the lime juice on the left. Tequila's in the middle. And on the right, which is the thing that I absolutely adore, is called sangrita which is kind of like tomato juice with stuff added. Lemon juice, lime juice, hot sauce, onions, whatever. Think kind of Bloody Mary-esque. But the really fun thing about this is, is every place you go to, the sangrita is different. And you can adjust the acidity with the lime on the, on the left. That's the way you drink tequila. And when you do that, it's incredible. It's an incredible experience. Um, this is kind of a cool thing out of Peru, which I think, I hope they're going to be marketing on the right there, which is the chicha morada, the purple corn. And if you boil that purple corn, you get this unbelievably delicious liquid, which is incredibly rich in antioxidants. From a health perspective, it's like a superfood. Delicious. Hit the button. <sighs> Once in a while, I'm in a place where somebody has an idea that's just brilliant. This is a tough photo to explain, it's hard to see, but um, when you drink a, a, a beverage like raka, which is the ouzo of Turkey, um, you want to drink it ice cold. The problem is, if you put it in a shot glass, you don't just, you sort of sip it. Well, then it warms up, and then it's not so good. Now, you could take your little shot glass and put it in ice water, but then the problem with that is every time you pick it up, it drips all over the place. And so they made these containers, which I've only seen in Turkey, and it's smart. And all it is is a metal container that's a donut, and you put water in it, they freeze it, and then your shot glass fits inside. So you can sit there and chat, 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 sip on your, on your raka, and it's always ice cold and dry and not dripping. It's a brilliant little idea. And of course, hot chocolate. Real hot chocolate, Mexican hot chocolate, with a little molanillo and fluffy, with texture and richness. Remember that restaurant I told you about earlier that serves the, the conchas for breakfast in Mexico City? That serves them fresh out of the oven? That's the restaurant. And those guys come to your table in the traditional way and make you the traditional hot chocolate right in front of you you know, foaming up the milk, pour you this with a French, freshly made concha for breakfast, and you are in heaven. Now, that's, that's great. 
How many restaurants in America serve hot chocolate? How many of them serve amazing hot chocolate? This is not hard to make. This is really easy, okay? But the point is, when you do that and make it special as a restaurateur, I can all charge more for it. Uh, move on to the next one. Okay, this is the last one. We have to end with coffee, because everything has been done in coffee. I mean, we have cold coffee, nitro coffee, lattes, cafe au lait, which by the way is the same as latte, um, cappuccinos, macchiatos, cortados, espresso, French press, press, Aeropots, Chemexes, oh my gosh, think about all the coffee paraphernalia. And yet, have we really seen it all? Quito, Ecuador. I was there a few years ago, and on this occasion, I was in front of the big cathedral, monastery, it's a big plaza right in the center. We were going to an event, we were a little early, it was really cold, and so we just had a quick espresso right in front of this little restaurant, right in front of them. And comes the espresso table with this on top. Now, you know, that is the cathedral, and the convent, and the mountains in the back, and the name of the city. And I'm like, dude, how did they do that? And so I went back and watched them do the next one. And literally, a guy just like takes like chocolate stuff and goes, <laughs> done. And I thought to myself, you know, so many times what's great in restaurants are the details. I will never forget that cup of coffee until I was at a coffee place in Chicago called Sip. And I, they did the same thing, and I'm like, oh, wow. It's brilliant. It's brilliant marketing, right? Um, this young lady, this was a kind of a fun concept. We all talk about food trucks. This is in uh, uh, Concepcion, Chile. And this woman pulls up her little tiny car onto the plaza, opens up the hatchback, and she is ready to go with an espresso machine, and everybody just lines up. I mean, it's just like, really? That fits in your little car? Or the espresso machine, which maybe is a little outdated now, but on an airplane, that was the highlight of that trip. Um, and the last thing I just want to end with, well, second to last, is Turkish coffee. The one coffee tradition we have not yet in this country adopted. And I know that if you've made Turkish coffee, it's a little bit, you know, but there are automatic Turkey or Turkish coffee makers. And I've had it in Turkey. Now, is it quite as good as like boiling it three times? But is it pretty darn good? Yes. And there's a whole tradition that goes with this, with the water, with the little Turkish delight, the whole nine yards. We have not seen that. Some restaurateur needs to do that and really run with it. The last thing I wanna end with, hang on, not yet. Let me just, I have to, I have to set this one up right. Does this see what the next slide is? No, no don't. Okay, so, I gave you a bunch of inspirations internationally. I hope they're, I hope they're interesting. Um, we went around the world like several times in the last hour and 15 minutes. Um, but cool stuff happens everywhere. And you just have to keep your eyes open. 
On my computer, I have a whole slew of photos of stuff that I've seen that is like, oh, that's cool. Sometimes they're little ideas, sometimes they're big ideas, sometimes they're real inspirations. So last, a uh, few years ago, I was in uh, Las Vegas, a city I deeply don't like going to. And um, it's there for a conference, and I was walking back through like a convention sort of area. Nobody was there. Uh, you know, I had to, you know, go into the restroom, right? And so I see like men's, I'm like, great. So I walk into the men's bathroom. Now nobody's in the bathroom, which was important because I took some pictures in there. <laughs> and as I'm standing at the urinal, I look up and I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's brilliant. Hit the button. <laughs> This, this was a big bathroom, so lots of urinals, right? And I just thought, you know, who thought of this? Because it's really funny, <laughs> you know? And anyways, I just thought this was absolute, the definition of inspiration is not necessarily doing something that's earth shattering, but doing something that makes you never forget the place. And I will never forget this place. And I've used it in many presentations. Anyways, thank you very much. I particularly like the magnifying glass. I think that's... <laughs> so you say. <laughs> Do we have time for questions or? Chris, Definitely. Can I you for a second to taste the soup? Yes. Is it? Can you bring me a little bit? I'll just... Questions? Well, how about a comment? Yeah, go on. I have made your Malaysian pancake with the rice inside. Oh, did you? Oh, yes, good. I did. How did it come out? Great. Oh, good. <laughs> Whenever somebody's like, you know, I used your recipe, like, there's this moment of where I hold my breath. Because what comes after that is, it was great, or it didn't work at all. You know? <laughs> Any questions? Please. Um, I know that internationally, a lot of folks uh, start with uh, a soup for breakfast. Or a version of a warm, you know, whether it be congee or something like that. Were there any interesting things that you Remember that the, and do you think that um, the United States will ever kind of bring that? Um, look, the United States is a country that knows no bounds. We know no traditions. I mean, we don't. I mean, we do, but we don't. In other words, we change faster than most countries do. And even while breakfasts are slow to change, they will change. There's, there's, there's no doubt about it. Um, you know, stews, yeah, I mean, I see stews in places sometimes like India. Um, you know, kanji, of course, in, 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 uh, in China. Um, you know, miso soup in, in Japan. But, you know, I also see a lot of other interesting foods. I mean, like, I was in Turkey recently and, and had... I can't remember the name of this, but it's basically like reduced grape must. So it's kind of sweet and tangy, and, and then they put it with, um, with like a tahini, but it's a roasted, really, really roasted thing. By the way, she's one? amazing. This like, is pot one, this is pot two, so you're going to have to tell me. Which is, like, which is the right one? Well, which, which it might need salt, that's what I'm thinking. Okay, pot one's good. Oh, there. Okay. 
I put a little bit of salt in the bottle. A little bit of salt. Love it. Um, anyways, they, they, so in um, so they serve this this tahini, really roasted sesame tahini, with this very sort of syrupy grape must, and then you you eat it with with, with this pastry that I just can't get enough of called a smit, which is the Turkish kind of version of a bagel, a little bit. It looks like a bagel, sort of, it's round. And it has, it's, it's encased in sesame seeds, uh, but, but small. And you, you, you put that with this, with this combination. And you know what it is? I was eating it like, because like, the, the waiter actually, I got to know the waiter in this hotel, and he brought this in special for me. He's like, from my city makes the best reduced grape must, I can't remember the name of it. It's peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. And it was like, but with but the combination, I, again, I was thinking, any American would dig this. It's so good, but different flavors. Hot or cold? Uh, cold, that's yeah, all cold, yeah. Yes? Is there a place to get guinea pig in Chicago? I've never seen a place to get guinea pig in Chicago. No, probably at the pet store. <laughs> I, I, I scream, you, you're probably too young to have a little Marshall Fields ice cream. What, say that again? You're too young to have, the old, have had the old Marshall Fields ice cream. Probably. It was it was very high overrun. Yeah. It was 35% butterfat. It was like any frozen whipped cream. That's not so expensive. Bad. <laughs> well, if it's Marshall Fields, right? <laughs> o o overrun is not, it's not always. No, that's true. Yes. Um, the masa? There's a, there's like a, it says like masa marina. Yes. It's like flour. Yes. Because I don't know any other way to get. Yes. Go to Popoca yeah. and you can buy the masa ready to make tortillas. They'll give you the masa. Pretty sure they do also. Okay. Which is multiple locations. Yeah, I've seen them. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the way to do it because everything's mixed in. You have the the the. Ideally, lard in there and everything, and it's ready to go. Yeah. Could you say the name of that Which? The, the, well, the. The nickname is El Popo. It is El Popo, yeah. Because Popo took me like three years to be able to pronounce. It's an Aztec word. Um, yeah, El Popo is the, is the short, which of course also means poo poo in Spanish. Um, so, yeah, Popo Catepetl is P O P C A. something but if you start at Google we'll pick it up and then there's Carnesseria Jimenez yeah which also has it yeah it's so worth it I mean you know the thing about the, the whole tortilla thing is that you know buying the masa is dirt cheap I mean it's so cheap and once you make your own tortillas you'll be like why <laughs> did we ever buy them I mean it's such a difference yes Restaurant called Zizi's on, on uh, Sheffield by Oakdale, I believe. And every day they have a lunch special, and they have is you pronounce it P-Day? P-Day, yeah. P-Day? Yeah. Yes, that's a special of the day. And I've never seen that before. And they have a... Yeah, I mean, P-Day is like that. It's also the name of the, the pita bread itself, which, you know, is, you know, turkey and greaser. But yeah, I mean, Turkish food. The other thing about turkey is that, that I find amazing which you won't hear, is 
the lamb. The quality of the lamb. Now, if you're one of those people who like, I love the lamb when it tastes like beef. There's a lot of people who are like, you know, I don't like the flavor of lamb, but if you get certain ones from certain countries, it tastes more like beef than lamb. Turkey is not for you. If you love lamb flavor, like hearty lamb flavor, oh, turkey's for you. I mean, it, it's lamby. I love it. You had another question. Does anybody make tortillas out of anything other than flour or corn or a mixture of flour? Could Tris, could you repeat the question? Yeah, I'm sorry. The question was, does anybody make tortillas other than corn or flour? Or a mixture of those two things. I'm sure somebody does. I haven't seen it. I mean, it reminds me of a flatbread I had in India. There's a restaurant that a woman put together after like three years of research, she's you know slow food India, and one of the most amazing meals of my life. Um, all vegetarian, but it's vegetarian in the aristocratic, uh, historical aristocratic style. So it would have been served to the the aristocrats a hundred years ago. Um, incredible. But one of the things that that we had, we had a flatbread made from millet. And millet is actually a very traditional grain in, in, in India. And it's called 100 points. And this is nuts. They make the, the flatbread. And then somebody in the kitchen has to pinch each flatbread 100 times. So it's 100 pinches, like this. And then they slap it into the tandoor, and all the pinches burn. So you have 100 burned points on top of this flatbread, which gives it like a espresso, smoky flavor and, and textural contrast. Uh, it was one of the, again, one of those like moments where it's like, this is kind of peasant food. Oh my gosh. Just memorable beyond belief. That restaurant's in Chennai, if anybody goes there, I'll happily give you the name. It's incredible. Yes? When you traveled internationally, did you teach any American cooking? Oh yeah, we, I, I would always do that. So I would do, I would do um, what I would do is I would teach American food. Uh, in fact, right now there's two Kendall instructors en route to Ecuador uh, where they're teaching uh, a week of uh, American cooking, actually. And they do a whole thing about the regions and history of the U.S. And just last night I dropped off stone ground grits, uh, ancho powder, chipotle powder, um, cedar planks, else, wild rice. Yeah, yeah, so they go down and, and do that. Um, I had an experience a number of years ago where I was teaching barbecue, which was really crazy, in uh, Sweden and Denmark. And uh, I mean, literally, like, you know, real American barbecue history, regionality, the whole thing. And then we, we would, I would lecture for an hour and a half, and then uh, we would serve like 200 people to this, you know, orgy of barbecue. And uh, what I discovered, which was just, and now I understand it, at the time I didn't understand it. Um, you know the, the, the Eastern Carolina barbecue sauce, which is you know vinegar and, and you know, basically hot, hot sauce and maybe some salt. Um, I made that and I made Big Bob's uh, barbecue chicken from Alabama, which is the only white barbecue sauce, so it's mayonnaise based, uh, with lots of horseradish and vinegar and mustard in it. 
And uh, so as, as people were, we made this buffet and I was like, you know, we had all these barbecue sauces. I'm like, you know what, you know, try the vinegar one, you know, try that because it seems kind of it's different. It's, you know, because most people internationally only know our barbecue by sweet barbecue sauces because that's what's exported. And so I was like, you know, just, yeah, just, you know, just try that one. Put a little bit on your pulled pork. See how it is? They would take one bite of this and they would grab that squirt bottle and they would just be like, shh. All over. I'm like, wow, it's like straight vinegar. It's like, awesome. Oh, Great, but that actually fits their their flavor profile. The vinegar, the horseradish, the and so it was really a weird experience because what I thought would be like the most sort of shocking was actually the thing they were like the sweet stuff is like yeah whatever they were like just spray that vinegar on. You know? <laughs> we all have our different tastes, so yeah, I've I've shared our culture many times. And then at the same time, I would take other ingredients around the world. Like I always had like American in my bag and Esau, and I would introduce those to other companies. We'll take one more question. Yeah. You're going to import it? Great. I do have Sancho peppercorns, which will make your, give your mouth that totally Absolutely. sensation if you want to. But I was wondering, these ideas are really very inspirational and cool. Are any of your students so excited by these concepts that they're currently working on opening one of these places we should have in America? Um, Time will tell. It takes students time to get to that point. But, oh, there's, there's tons of interest in, you know, what's, what's happening internationally. I think what's unique about the students today is that they are the benefactors of vast amounts of information, which is good and bad, right? Because, you know, is it real information or not? But there's a hunger for authenticity that, 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 you know, when I was starting out in the kitchens, there was a hunger for authenticity, but there's no way to get it except to go there. Um, today, we can get everything downloaded on our cell phone, but again, it's, you know, how much is, is really authentic. Oh, I just want to say, Beth, everybody, this is Patty Bird, who just asked the question, who with her husband, Tom, runs the Spice House. So for the, some of the best spices in the country, it's Patty Bird's place on Wall Street, where do you still get Aleppo pepper, or is that done? Uh, we get Aleppo pepper, but it's not coming from, from Aleppo. It's Aleppo type pepper. They're even growing in the U.S. now. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, that's a sad thing. Okay. I think I think I was told we're done. Are we done? We're done. I get you. Thank you very much. Oh, hang, hang on, just real quickly, guys. Uh, there's a few things out out there for you to try. Um, you have the locro, the soup, uh, which I just tasted. You have um, the pan de lote, which is a cornbread from northern Mexico, which is this is really. Probably not a nice thing to say in the U.S. It is the best cornbread I've ever eaten in my entire life. We don't make good cornbread in this country. Wait till you try that. It's like, that was an eye-opening experience for me. Um, and what is the other one? The Turkish rice pudding. Oh, the Turkish rice pudding, yeah. The sutlach, which uh, I showed in that one picture. It's just, it's basically rice pudding, and then you burn the top of it. It's, it's uh, yummy. So, enjoy. Thank you. Thank you.